I don't have my Bible. I have my phone. And so if my phone freaks out on me, I might need somebody to get me a Bible. But uh, we'll see if I can speak to you guys from technology. If you want to, you can turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. And today we're going to be talking about King Solomon. And just a little background on King Solomon. Uh, Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. And if you know anything about the story of David, they kind of started off, or not kind of, they really started off uh, very dicey. In fact, hey Donovan, Donovan, they're already back there, bud. You can go to class. Uh, in fact... They, uh, they had an uh, adulterous relationship. David, David uh, took Bathsheba when she was married into the palace, and, and she ended up conceiving a child. And uh, they, he, he ended up having her husband uh, basically murdered by putting him on the front lines of a battle and having the army retreat from him. And uh, so uh, it started off really bad, and God was really upset with David. And, and in fact, the... The, the child that he conceived uh, in, that, in that sin uh, became ill and died, and then he had a lot of hardship um, after that as a result. He, he had a rebellion from his son. A lot of bad stuff happened. But anyway, uh, as God is so awesome to do, David repented of his sin, and God took what the enemy meant for bad and made it good, and he restored their marriage and made it something good and godly. And uh, from that marriage, their, their second child that they had was Solomon. And Solomon, out of all of David's sons, I think he had like, uh, like ten sons maybe, uh, out of all of David's sons, Solomon was chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. And so, uh, in First Kings chapter 2, Solomon has just assumed the throne, and David is giving him instructions uh, not many days before he's going to die. So starting in verse 1 here, it says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now David's charge to Solomon uh, is very similar to God's charge to Joshua whenever Moses had died and Joshua went from being the second in command uh, over Israel to being the leader of Israel who was taking them into the promised land. And so if you, if you want to, you can flip over to uh, Joshua chapter 1. I just want to read it to you for comparison. Joshua 1 verse 6. And it says, uh, this is God speaking to Joshua. He says, and Moses has just died. He says, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth 
but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And you see, there's in both these uh, very similar passages, there is a direct correlation between being courageous enough to obey the Word of God and being successful in life. There's a direct correlation in both of these Holy Spirit-inspired, one directly from God, uh, charges to these men who are walking into these, uh, the, their, their, their calling in life, walking into their destiny. And, uh, you know, the key to success in life is to, is to submit to God and follow the leading of His Word and His Holy Spirit. That's the, that, that is a, a thread throughout Scripture that prosperity, and mind you, not necessarily worldly prosperity, but prosperity in the thing that God has called us to do, and in, in a meaningful, uh, satisfying, uh, fulfilling life, is, is having the courage to obey the Word of God. And... Uh, if you turn over to Psalm chapter 1, very, very familiar psalm. You know, the psalmist talks about the word a lot. But in Psalms 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever who does shall prosper. Whatever the man who meditates on the word day and night, who continually uh, has the word of God in his heart. So... Uh, you know, Paul told us in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it's useful to teach us what is true and right and correct us in our hearts when we're wrong from the inside out. And he, he went on to say that God uses it to, to prepare and equip us for every good work. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite verses about the Bible is Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And now hopping back to the Psalm, Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And then if you skip down a little farther in Psalm 119, verse 111, he says, your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. And you see, just so many people miss something very important because the key to success and the key to stepping into the, the things of God in our life is not reading the Bible. Reading the Bible, uh, in my opinion, can create a lot of frustration. Uh, it can it can uh, create uh, some some empty returns, I guess, if you will, because the key to the the key to life and success is not reading the Bible. The key to life and success is treasuring the Bible. 
It's, it's, it's not just reading a book. It is making the Bible, the book, your treasure. Because when the Word of God becomes your treasure, then the Lord Himself begins to become your treasure. And we find our greatest satisfaction in life when our, when our, when our ultimate source of satisfaction is in Him. And so that's the key to life. Like the psalmist said, your laws are my treasure. And, uh, you know, when we are so convinced that the Bible is God's inspired word and that it is far superior than any other wisdom that this world has to offer, then we will be successful in all that we do. Now, why is that? The reason is, is that the Bible is a living book that God supernaturally prepares us for every good work with. That's what Paul told Timothy. It is like a sharp, precision, spiritual tool that God uses on the inside of us. You know, nothing else can, can do work on the inside of us like the Word of God. And it, it's described as a sharp, precision tool that can, that can shape us into the people that God wants us to be uh, and, and make us more like Jesus. And as we become more and more like Jesus, and His desire and heart becomes our desires and heart, the promise that Jesus gave His disciples in John fifteen seventeen begins to apply more and more to our life. Because this promise that He gave wasn't just a blank check that any Joe Smo could take and, and get whatever they want. The promise was to those who, who had forsaken all and followed after Him. And this is what He told them. He said, If you remain in Me, and My words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. And so, in the, uh, so that, that's, that's just awesome to me. Uh, that lays a little bit of a foundation of, of, of what the Bible says. Uh, about the Bible, you know, and, 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 and the importance that God puts on His Word. And do not be deceived. You know, I think that there's, uh, there's some people, and Pastor kind of talked about it on Sunday a little bit, there's some people who, who, who have put a heavy emphasis on, on the spiritual. And the spiritual is, is very important, but the spiritual is not... Uh, complete without the Word of God. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that, that the spiritual without a strong foundation in the Word of God uh, is, is, is a means for, for a lot of trouble, you know? So, uh, back to Solomon, but back even before Solomon, uh, in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you want to turn there, uh, God had intended for Israel to be different from other nations. Where most of the nations back in uh, that time, excuse me, where most of the nations back in that time were monarchies, they were, they were ruled by kings. I'm going to get over in the middle here. They were ruled by kings. God uh, intended Israel to be a theocracy, a nation ruled by God. And that was his intent, but God in his omniscience, in his all-knowing about everything that would happen, foresaw that Israel would want a king one day. And so what he did in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, he gave to Israel in the law uh, 
provisions for when they demanded a king. And starting in verse 14, he says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around you, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, and you shall set as king, uh, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also, and here's the positive, those were the don't do's, here's the positive. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. From, from, the, from the one before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, and that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." So, uh, God gives these laws for the king to follow. Uh, And just to review them real quick, because they're going to come back up here in a little bit. The king had to be from Israel. Couldn't be a foreigner. Had to be an Israelite. And it had to be someone who God appointed. Uh, he, He said he should not multiply horses or cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. He shouldn't uh, marry a lot of women. I could see how that could cause a lot of problems. Uh, He should not amass large amounts of wealth in silver and gold. And lastly, and I think most importantly, the king was to to write his own copy of the the whole Bible up to that point, which was uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He was to write his own copy that he would read every day. That was God's... That was God's uh, laws for the king. And, you know, after he talked about the daily reading of the Bible, God actually gives a couple of insights into what daily reading the Scripture does in our lives. And I believe that these apply to us today. And they're listed right here, and I just listed them out uh, just to hit them real quick. Number one, it brings the fear of the Lord into our hearts. Secondly, it results in obedience to God. Uh, thirdly, it brings humility before God and suppresses our pride. And then the fourth thing that he said here is that it, it sets our hearts on God and keeps us from turning away, even in the smallest manner. And so, to me, those are huge. Those are four huge landmark things uh, that, that every believer needs. And those things are accomplished in our life by a dedicated daily reading of the Bible and treasuring the Scripture uh, as, as sovereign, as authoritative, as the final say in our life. And so uh, that's, that, to me, puts a necessity on reading the Bible. Now, uh, Solomon, I give, you a, I give you a little bit of context uh, to the Scriptures we're going to read about he kind of, how he kind of 
fell short of a lot of these laws. But after he became king and after David died, there was some political intrigue. Uh, one of his brothers tried to raise up and take the kingdom from him. Uh, Adonijah, maybe, I think. I didn't write his name down. Uh, and, and they ended up fighting and he ended up killing him, actually. Uh, and, and so he, he, he had, there was some turmoil and some intrigue and some political stuff. And then finally, uh, he was established as king. And after he was established as king, he went to a place called Gibeon, where there was an altar to God. And the Bible says that he offered, uh, as an offering to God for establishing him as king, he offered 1,000 burnt offerings to God, an extravagant offering to the Lord. And, and directly after that offering, God appeared to him. And he said, Solomon, uh, ask anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. And so Solomon thought about it, and uh, you know, there's some disagreement about how old he was. A lot of people think he was pretty young. But he said, God, I'm, I'm like a little child here who doesn't know what to do. He said, I ask that you would give me wisdom so that I could rightly rule your people. And so God liked that. God was pleased with that. Uh, and he said, you know what, Solomon, not only am I going to give you wisdom, but because your request was selfish, I'm gonna, selfless, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you riches and wisdom, and you're going to reign. Uh, and, and it ended up being Solomon reigned over what uh, the Jews considered the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. And so uh, that was really awesome, and, and it speaks to his relationship with the Lord. And God also promised him a long life, and he said, uh, he, he renewed the covenant that he had given to David. He said, he said, if you'll follow my commands and do what I tell you to do, uh, as long as you and your sons and their sons do that, then you will always sit on the throne of Israel, and Israel will always be my special people. So, uh, as the Bible goes on to give a record of Solomon's officials, his prosperity, his wealth, and all these things, we read something very interesting that sticks out to me in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 17. So, uh, go down to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings 4, uh, verse 26. And keeping the laws that, that God had given in Deuteronomy 17, uh, let's read this scripture. It says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, in the context of what he was told not to do in uh, Deuteronomy 17, he, that's, to me, that's a direct disobedience to what the Bible said, do not multiply horses. He's got, uh, you know, 40,000 stalls for horses full of horses. And um, so, so we begin to see a little bit of deviation in Solomon's life from what the Word said that he should do. And it's very small, and in fact, uh, you know, he continues to serve the Lord and, uh, you know, I think maybe in, in his own great wisdom, uh, you know, as he became more and more wise and prosperous and powerful, maybe he, he, he stopped seeing the need for the Word as a, daily, uh, as a daily inpouring into his life. Or maybe he just chose to disobey directly. I don't know. 
but, but that's just a small little piece of, of deviation. But then uh, he went on, it talks about how he wrote thousands of psalms and proverbs, and I think a handful of the psalms in the Bible are actually accredited to Solomon. Uh, I think it's only like two or three, but they, they actually call out Solomon as the author. And then he uh, is credited for writing most of the book of Proverbs that's in the Bible. So, so this guy was experiencing the Lord. He was channeling the Holy Spirit. He was, he was penning Scripture, and, uh, and, and God was moving through him. In fact, God, actually, God also used him to build the temple uh, in, in Jerusalem that replaced the tabernacle. Uh, which was the tent that Israel had, had moved around with them in the wilderness uh, as the place where God came and, and interacted with man. Uh, and so Solomon was a part of that, building the temple. And uh, in his dedication of the temple, Solomon uh, prayed this awesome prophetic prayer and dedication speech over the temple. And God was moving through him, and he led the people into the old covenant worship which was, which was the, the means by which, uh, you know, God, God had prescribed in the law for them to, to interact and be his people. So he was doing really good things. And um, again, God appears to Solomon after the dedication of the temple, and he, he comes to him again. And I thank God in his, in his, in his graciousness and in his, his goodness and in his mercy was kind of giving him a warning and, and was kind of forewarning him while things were still good. Because, you know, the Bible says, uh, whenever you stand, be careful not to fall. You know, because we, we in our humanness uh, are not too far away when we're on the top from falling to the bottom at all times, you know. And I believe that God in his graciousness had come, was coming to him. He was appearing to him. He saw what was coming down the road. And he said, Solomon, man, you're doing awesome. Uh, I just want to renew my covenant with you and tell you that, that if you and your sons will continue to obey me and follow my word, uh, you'll always be on the throne. And I'll always, I'll always use you to guide my, my special people, Israel. And so, you know, awesome God, that's great. Uh, yet if you, if you go to 1 Kings 9, we see another little deviation Turn over a couple of chapters, and everything I just gave you was between four and nine. Uh, in First Kings nine twenty-six, it says King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea. To work with sought with the servants of Solomon, and they went to Ophir and acquired four hundred and twenty talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. I think in my new living translation, does anybody have the new living translation? Uh, I think it says forty four hundred tons or some some gigantic amount of gold. That his, uh, that his fleet went all around the world and, and began to amass these large amounts of wealth. And, you know, God said that he would make Solomon wealthy, but there's a difference between being wealthy and amassing wealth for yourself. You know, there's a difference, especially when our, when our provision comes from the Lord. 
I'll show you what I mean by that. First uh, Timothy six verse seventeen through eighteen uh, says that that we should not trust in money, which is so unreliable, but to trust in God, who richly gives us all that we need. We should use our money for good works and always be ready to share with those in need. And so, you know, the purpose, you know, Jesus condemned the man, Jesus condemned the rich man in the parable who, who just built storehouses and just stored up stuff for himself. He said, you know, he, he told that guy, what are you doing? Because tomorrow you're, you're going to die and what's it going to benefit you? And so the key here is, is that, that God... Uh, God wants us to, to use our, our, what, what he gives us to, to pro- progress his kingdom, to, um, to, to help those in need. Now, I'm not saying that we need to give away all of our money. I don't do that. I, I praise God that uh, what I have, I can provide for my family. We can go on vacations. We can have a good time. We can go out to eat. Uh, but there's a difference uh, between amassing for self and, and being rich in the Lord. And, and in this case, Solomon was directly told in the Bible, don't amass large amounts of wealth. And the reason for that is, the reason for the horses and the reason for the wealth is, is because uh, power and money are two of the biggest things that make us rely more on us and less on God. You know? And so that's why God gave those, those, those rules, those laws. And then we read a little further in First Kings, and we find that the spiritual downfall of Solomon uh, is, is still quite common today because what we see in people's lives, people who are serving the Lord, who are making a difference, who are dedicated to the church, we see them allowing certain deviations from the Word of God to remain in their life. I say to remain in our life because I'm continually having to check my life and and, and see where, where maybe things have creeped in that are contrary to the Word of God, and, and, and I'm allowing them to stay there in my life rather than getting rid of them. And that's very common in, in our world today. And uh, compromising in one area of God's Word led to compromises in other area of, areas of the Word in Solomon's life. And if we skip forward to 1 Kings chapter 10... Uh, we see the compromises of Solomon that, that led to his, his final downfall, his final turning from the Lord. And just to, just to remind you real quick, the, the three do-nots were do not accumulate large sums of wealth, do not accumulate horses, especially from Egypt, and, marry, and do not marry large numbers of women. So, we'll go over to chapter 10 here. My phone is failing me. Okay. Uh, chapter 10, verse 14. Let's see. And it says, The weight of gold that, Sol- that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over to New Living just so it's in units that we understand. I don't know what a talent is. Uh, each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. This did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. He also made 300 smaller shields of hammered gold, each weighing nearly 400, weighing nearly 4 pounds, I'm sorry. The king placed these shields in the palace 
of the forests of Lebanon. So he's building it up, amassing. Uh, then the king made a huge throne, decorated with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and a rounded back. There were armrests on both sides of the seat, and the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also twelve other lions, one standing on each end and the six steps. No other throne in all the world could be compared with it. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not, they were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's days. Just piling it up. You know, and, and how many of you know that, that, that all those sailors that were, that were being sent all over the world had to be away from their families, you know, and, 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 and there were resources and there were probably lives lost. And, and, and there, I, I see in this a focus that, that is shifting from the things of God to the things of this world, especially with the outcome that comes. Uh, verse 22 says, Then the king had a fleet of trading ships, of Tarsus that sailed with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. People from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom God had given him. Year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. So here's the horses again. Uh, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Now where did... Where did God tell him not to buy horses from? Does anybody remember? Egypt. Egypt. Check this out. Uh, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. And we continue into uh, chapter 11. Don't amass wealth. Don't amass horses. Don't marry many women, right? Lest they turn your heart away from me. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. 
Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. And then I'll stop in verse 9, just reading the first couple of words from verse 9. It says, The Lord was very angry with Solomon. And so, you know, I know that there's maybe a little bit of contradiction there because God did say, not only will I make you wise, I will make you rich. And so Solomon's success and his riches were from the Lord, but what Solomon did whenever he was on the top derailed him. It caused him to fall because he didn't stay to the things that God had told him to do. And he continued to violate the commands that in Deuteronomy 17. And, uh, you know, these direct acts of disobedience allowed to remain in the midst of Solomon's dedicated service to God began to turn his heart away from the Lord. All it takes is a crack. You know, uh, does anybody watch reality television? Anybody? Survivor? It's a good show. Survivor? Yeah, there's some other ones that I'm not going to say that I watch, but I watch. <laughs> uh, you know, they always talk about whenever somebody's on the outside of the majority group, the majority alliance, they always talk about looking for cracks and saying, man, it looks like I'm on the outs and I'm on my way out, but if I could just find a crack. You know, and I believe that that's what the enemy does. He looks for those little cracks, those little areas where, where we can say, uh, you know, I know the Bible says this, but, you know, I've got freedom in the Lord, and everybody's doing it, and it's not a big deal. I just do it in my house. Nobody sees me. I'm just going to let this remain in my life. And it's a crack for the enemy to get a foothold in our life because one deviation from the Word leads to another deviation of the Word. And the Bible says that if we continue in that pattern, then our consciences become seared on the inside, and we no longer have that conviction of the Holy Spirit and of our conscience and it's a slippery slope to go down. So, uh, James 1, 14 through 15, uh, James talks about this. He says that temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sin, and when sin is allowed to grow, it brings forth death. That's James 1, 14 through 15. And this is why it's absolutely necessary that we not flirt with the flesh and with the world, but that we crucify it. That's what the Bible says. Show you two passages real quick. Turn over to Romans. We are done in Kings, so you can not keep your finger there if you want. Uh, if we turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Oop. Chapter 8, verse 7. says, for the sinful... Let me go back to New King James here. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And here's the, here's the, the power. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You know, and I've, I, I heard a Bible teacher one, say, one day say, I've always thought of that, that Scripture, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Led where by the Spirit of God? Led into mortal combat with our flesh. Led to daily uh, fight our flesh to the death so that God can reign supreme in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, and then, of course, in Galatians, I don't have it pasted in my notes, so I'll turn over there. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. You know, Paul just says it very bluntly. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, uh, God has no plan to remediate our flesh. God has no plan for our flesh to exist, to coexist with Him. Romans says they are mutually exclusive. They cannot be together on the inside of us. In fact, if we are in the flesh, we cannot please God. So there's no plan for God to remediate our flesh. The only solution is that we crucify it daily by denying ourselves and following after Jesus. So, uh, God was angered by Solomon's spiritual rebellion, and he told Solomon, he came to him, you know, I I see this as another act of mercy by God. I see it as another opportunity for him to turn from what he had done. And he comes to him and he says, he says, listen, man, you're making me mad. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take your kingdom from your son and I'm going to give it to one of your servants. And not only that, but I'm going to begin to raise up enemies against you, foreign and domestic. And you're going to have trouble for the rest of your life, man. And, and he told him that, but, but sadly, the Bible doesn't indicate in any way that there was repentance for the rest of Solomon's life. There's no indication in the Scripture that he ever turned from uh, his idol worship, that he ever repented and returned to service to the Lord. Uh, and the results of sin, the, ro- the results are clear from sin. You know, it causes us to face adversities that we normally would not have to face. It rises up adversities and struggles and difficulties and, 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 and death in our spirit that we wouldn't normally have to contend with. And, uh, you know, it disqualifies us from the conditional promises of God, and it causes us to lose those things that God has entrusted to us. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It always costs you more than you wanted to pay. Every time. Every way. And sadly, Solomon failed to keep all three of the commands that God had given to the kings. And it leads me to believe, and I already talked about it a little bit, that he didn't command that fourth and most important command to daily read the Bible. I got to believe that if he was reading the Bible every day and, and, and coming across this passage over and over and over again and, and having the, the living Bible speaking into his life, that he wouldn't have gone down the path that he went. But he broke, he broke these, these, he deviated from the, from, from the Bible. 
in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, uh, John addresses these same issues uh, that God addressed with the king. He addresses it directly to the New Testament believer. Uh, he told us, and this is just a paraphrase, he says, uh, not to love the world or the things in the world because we cannot love the world and have the love of the Father in us. They are mutually exclusive. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life summarize the things of the world and are not of the Father. The world is passing away with its lust, but he who, do, who does the will of God abides forever. You know, Paul warned Timothy. Uh, we talked about this scripture already. I'm going to say it again. He said that diligent reading of the scripture corrects us when we are wrong, teaches us to do what is right, and is used by God to prepare and equip us for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 So you see, we've got to be diligent in reading God's Word unless our hearts turn away like Solomon's did. And I want to show you uh, the results of a life that turns from the Lord. And Solomon is, is the, Solomon is the best case example, the best that the world can give apart from the Lord, because Solomon had the best of what the world had to offer. He had all the wealth, all the power, all the fame, all the women, all the food, and anything else that anyone could ever want in this world. Solomon had it. He had it. Yet at the end of his life, he was a disillusioned man because he turned his heart from the Lord. He deviated from God's Word and it turned his heart from the Lord. And here's the declaration of the man who had everything in the world except for right standing with God. Ecclesiastes 1-2. Solomon, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life whenever uh, he had turned from God and, and he had tried to find fulfillment in all things and he had everything that this world had to offer. He says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. You know, the, 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 new, te- the new King James says, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Uh, Solomon goes on in Ecclesiastes to describe that in all the things of the world, he found no true satisfaction. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes reveals the futility and frustration of a life that will come to every person who does not find their satisfaction and their treasure in God and His Word. It's a living testament of the man who had everything that this world had to offer but could not find satisfaction apart from the Lord. And you know, this is the story of so many men and women today. You know, so many people dedicate their lives to things other than the Lord and His kingdom and His purpose. And then at the end of their lives, they find emptiness meaninglessness, vanity. You know, I know that at times I struggle in my own heart. If I only had more, you know, then I would be happier. If I, if I only, if I only uh, could get my wife to be this way, then I would be happier. If I only had, uh, if I could just pay my house off and, and, and be mortgage-free, then I'd be happy. You know, and uh, I, I read a quote. I don't know if he's a believer or not. 
but Jim Carrey had a quote the other day, and he said, he said, I wish that every single person could become rich and famous so that they could understand that being rich and famous doesn't gain you anything in the bigger perspective of life. You know, and I just, I just found that to be profound. And I don't know anything about Jim Carrey. Maybe he bottomed out, and, and I don't know. But, but I thought it was a wise statement. And um, so we see this, this man who, who had everything in the world, and, and he, he turned from the Lord, and, and he was nothing but dissatisfied. But God in the Scripture gives us an antitype, an opposite, a, an example that we can not only look at what we shouldn't do, but he gives us an example of what we should do. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, Jesus is the Word. He is the antitype of Solomon. He is God's example of a life lived according to the charges to Joshua and Solomon. He obeyed all of God's Word. He meditated on it day and night. That's why He was and is the Word. And you know, one of the greatest examples to me of the power of the Word is when Jesus went into the wilderness and He fasted for 40 days to be tempted so that, so that He could be uh, you know, the high priest who was tempted in every way that we were but without sin so that now we can come boldly to the throne of God through Him and His righteousness. And, and, you know, he went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And at the end of 40 days of fasting, no food, no water, uh, he's physically weak. The devil comes to tempt him. And uh, Satan, uh, Satan tempted him with the same things of this world that, derailed, that he derailed Solomon with. Because, you know, Solomon wasn't fulfilled by all the food and the delicacies that the world had to offer I imagine that, that, that he was never want. I don't imagine he ever fasted for 40 days. Uh, I imagine that he was, he was as we are, often glutted. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I eat more than I should, more than I eat less than I should. You know, and, and, and so Solomon had all that he wanted from, a, from, a, from a, a food satiation standpoint, and he wasn't satisfied from that. But when Satan tempted Jesus to turn the stone into bread, Jesus responded, No. The Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you see, Jesus realized that more than the food that we eat every day, who here can remember the last day that you just went without food? Anybody? <laughs> I don't go five hours. Chris does. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, I, I, I have to repent sometimes for, for not implementing the practice of fasting but I know most of the time I don't like to go four or five hours without food because we become physically weak you know we become physically weak in our bodies and it's a necessity to eat in order to 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 continue life but Jesus realized that more than the food that we eat on a daily basis we need the word of God in our spirit daily it is our 
daily bread. It is our spiritual sustenance. And the food that we eat, the reason that we are relying on food is because it is a, it is a type, it is a symbol of the, of the living bread that is the Word of God that we need to survive as a believer. And just as we would get weak if we didn't eat for a day, spiritually, it makes a difference in our lives when we don't read the Word of God. We don't treasure it. We don't study it. Uh, Solomon was not satisfied with worldwide celebrity and renown. But Satan came and he tempted Jesus. He said, he took him up to the top of the temple. And there was a lot of people down there. And, and he said, he said, throw yourself off the temple. The scriptures say that the angels won't allow your foot to be dashed on the stone. And, and he knew, Jesus knew what would happen if he jumped off of that, that temple and, and he gravitated down. <laughs> and, and he knew that, that he would be recognized as Messiah, as a miracle worker, as, as the Son of God. He knew that he would gain instant renown and celebrity, but there was a problem with that. It would have shortcutted God's plan to elevate him above every name after one very important thing, the cross. Because had he, had he uh, given in to that temptation, the cross would have never been accomplished and we would be hopelessly lost in our sin. You know? And uh, let's see, I've lost my place. Jesus responded, the Scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. You know, Solomon wasn't satisfied with all the power and wealth that came with ruling over all of Israel. But Satan tempted Jesus, he said, and Satan, Satan had control of the world at this time. This was not, you know, if it would have been true, I believe that Jesus would have rebuked him. Uh, but Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you rulership over all the kingdoms of the earth. And, um, you know, he, he tempted him uh, to, for, this, for, this, for this great power, this great thing that, that, that contends for the, for the hearts of men. And again, though, this would have shortcutted God's plan to elevate Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords after the cross. You know, in his time, in his plan, in his way. And Jesus said, get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Matthew 4.10. So we look at this and we, we, you know, I ask, what was it that Jesus used to overcome the temptations of the devil? You know, it's the scriptures. It was the Bible. It was that living knowledge of the Word of God, that, that treasuring of the Bible that allowed him in the moment of temptation to defeat the enemy, to rise above the temptations, to not to succumb to the things of this, wor- this world. Uh, Solomon turned from the, word, from the Word, gained everything that the world has to offer, and was perpetually dissatisfied in his soul. Jesus was the Word. He forsook this world. And let me read you Philippians 2, 9-11. It says, Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Turn with me real quick to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, verse 34. It says, when he, speaking of Jesus, had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And here's, here's how I believe it really ties into this lesson. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And sadly, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what men give for their soul, give, give for their souls. They give their souls for money. Give their souls for sex, adultery, pornography. They give their souls for anger, choosing not to control themselves. Men men pay so little for their souls. They find themselves at the end of their lives meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You know, Jesus was the Word. He forsook the things of this world to pursue God and His purposes. And God has now exalted Him above every other name. Gave up a little bit for a little while in this world to gain eternal reward to gain His eternal kingship, His eternal lordship. And we're called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and become heirs of the kingdom of God. This is primarily accomplished by the Word taking residence and priority in our lives. And I want to encourage you today to become diligent about reading the Word of God. I want to encourage you to make a commitment to daily read the Word. I want to encourage you to to find a time in your day, to make a time in your day where you can read the Bible, where you are not distracted, where you can focus on the Word, where you can consume it and study it, and and, and where if if something deserves and calls in your spirit for deeper uh, investigation and deeper uh, mining and a deeper understanding where you can spend the time and, and take 30 minutes or an hour or whatever you need to do to get this into your heart. Not to read, but to treasure. You know, we need to make it a time when, when, whenever nothing else or a time in the day when, whenever the very least other things are, are, are vying for the attention of our heart, you know? Uh, I find that early in the morning is the best time for me. I believe that, you know, the Bible says that, that Jesus would rise before the sun came up and He would pray and He would read and He would learn, uh, He would communicate with the Lord. 
And uh, you know the 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 reason that the reason that praying and and reading your Bible early in the morning is probably the best time is the same reason why uh, working out early in the morning or right after you get off of work is important because. The, the longer you let your day go on, the more the things of this world will begin to fill your life and contend for your heart, you know? And so I find, uh, and, and this, this isn't necessarily a, a, a prescription for you, but it's a description of what I have found in my life is the most effective time to read the Bible is, 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 is to, to find a time before your day starts, before your kids wake up, before uh, you have to get ready for work, and, 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 and wake up early and read the Bible, you know? And it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in, in our lives. It's living and active and sharp. You know, it will change your life. It will make you more like Jesus. It will set your heart and actions on God's kingdom purposes. And you just might stir, store up for yourself treasure and reward in heaven. Amen? Amen. You guys can stand or stay seated. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name, God, that you would stir in our hearts, Lord God, a a desire and a commitment to be diligent about reading your word, God. Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied with going to your word every couple of days or once a week or every now and then, Lord, but that we would hunger for your word, God. And Lord, I, I pray that like the psalmist said, God, that, that we would treasure your word in our heart, that it would be the treasure of our heart, Lord God. And so therefore, we choose to, to diligently know your word, God. Father, we pray that, that you would help us, God, not to uh, succumb to the the, the things of this world, Lord God, the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the lust of the eyes, God. But Lord, that you would help us by the Scripture as you demonstrated, Lord, to overcome the temptations of the devil, to overcome, Lord, the pitfalls of life, Lord, to pursue passionately after the purpose and the destiny and the calling that you have on our lives by being diligent students and treasurers of your Word, God. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. I pray that you would begin to speak to us, God, like you never have before through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit on the inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.